This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 9, Episode 3, Money Matters, The Poor and Naive Meet the Rich and Dangerous. In conversation with author Brian Finney. Brian returns to the show to discuss his novel, Money Matters, which was his debut work, and it's firmly embedded in Los Angeles's seductive culture during the 2010 gubernatorial election. It's a story about two sisters on two very different trajectories from life, money, men, and personal values. Trisha, the older of the two, is a successful, hard-charging, high-end real estate agent. But her hapless 27-year-old sister, Jenny, is the polar opposite, eking out a living as a houseplant carer and part-time private eye researcher. We follow Jenny as she stumbles into a missing person investigation on behalf of a Mexican housekeeper. At the same time, we follow her through a labyrinth of dirty politics, Mexican drug cartels, undocumented immigrant woes, and the ever-lurking technology of the surveillance society. Southern California's cheery and sunny facade is ripped away by Brian Finney to expose the noir and sinister underbelly of Los Angeles, familiar to us in films such as Chinatown. Money Matters was a finalist for the America Fiction Awards. It's a gripping tale of seemingly familiar characters who do some nasty deeds, but all in the critical and cutting satirical eye of the author. Brian Finney is a professor emeritus of English literature at Cal State University, Long Beach, and he joins us today from his home in Venice, California. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim, for having me back. My pleasure. Brian, for the benefit of our listeners, would you please take a moment and tell us a little bit about your biography as both an academic and an author? Um, well, as you can tell from my accent, I was born in England, in London, and I spent the first half of my life there, and I emigrated to the United States in 1987. That's like 34 years ago. So I've almost spent half my life here in Los Angeles. I've been in Venice all that time. When I was in England, I started off actually in industry and uh, I reached a point where I was about to be offered a factory managership with all the perks that go with it and realized I would be caught forever in that world if I didn't make the decision then to move. And so I moved laterally into the uh, university administration of London University where I had the position, roughly speaking, of someone in an extension program here, a university extension program. I, I hired lecturers from the university to talk to and teach uh, the London public outside the strict credit system. Uh-huh. And, you know, that, I mean, that, that involves some very interesting cooperations with the National Theatre, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, the British Film Institute, National Gallery. So it was fun. It was a fun job. 
eventually I moved, I, I took a PhD while I was in London, did a PhD on D.H. Lawrence's shortest fiction, which brought me to the United States for the very first time and the research for it, because nearly all the manuscripts were scattered around the university libraries in the United States. And um, eventually I ended up being a kind of semi, I was a semi-chair of my department. There were two chairs, two, two sections of the department. And I, I landed up administering Margaret Thatcher's severe cuts to that era of adult education, which I was completely opposed to and thought, why am I doing this? Yeah, very grim. Um, <laughs> and, and meantime, I had been coming over to Southern California and doing summer courses for UCLA and USC. So I thought, no, why don't I just go to America uh, and teach full time there and mm -hmm. be done with it? So I did that. In fact, I did that. Uh, I applied for jobs, didn't get any, anything in advance. Um, I was about to leave London, had everything packed up in my apartment, and the phone went hours before it was disconnected. <laughs> and the chair of UC Riverside English Department said, the person we offered the job to for next year has already taken one elsewhere. Would you like it? Uh -huh. And when I said yes, she said, well, you're already being paid several days, from several days beforehand. <laughs> so that was a very easy landing. Uh -huh. It only lasted two years, the visiting professorship, after which I became a freeway flyer. Uh -huh. And I eventually settled for California State University, Long Beach, because the class size was so much smaller that I actually got to know the students by name there. I eventually got a tenure job there and push my way up the ladder to become a full professor again. I think I started off in what must have been my what, late 60s or something as the perhaps the oldest assistant professor in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, you know, like, uh, where are we now? Like six, six years ago or so, I stopped full-time teaching. Uh -huh. Ah, very impressive. And at that point, then, your your career as a novelist took off because prior to being a novelist, of course, you had written a number of books, one on Christopher Isherwood, among others, but, but your full-time retirement project was to become a novelist, right? Well, that's, that's, that's how it turned out, yes. I didn't, didn't realize it was going to happen that way, but suddenly, you know, confronted with the freedom of endless days where I can elect what I want to do or not want to do, although I spent my whole life teaching students you know, how to analyze fiction, how fiction works, how it's put together. Um, and why not, why not actually write some myself? Uh, well, that's a, <laughs> so, that's, a, that's a perfect segue into Money Matters. So why don't we talk about Money Matters? Give us a, sure. give us a sense of how you came up with the, how you came up with the plot and some of the themes, some of the major themes in the book, which are still, very prominent themes both here in California and throughout the United States. It, it's hard to actually pin it down specifically. I, I know that I was really caught up by the political arguments going on at the time. The book is set in the governor's election of 2010. Mm -hmm. And the, the major argument uh, swirling around at that time was over immigration. Yes. And immigration was, I mean, after all, you know, I'm an immigrant. Myself, yes. uh, I'm, I'm a naturalized American, and so I understand some of the, uh, what should I say, so, you know, the, the mindset of being an immigrant and of, of being confronted with an alien culture, that, that the language might be the same, but the culture is very different. So immigration really appealed to me as a, as a topic, 
And as you say, immigration figures large in the novel. It was, it was about one thing more than anything else. It's about immigration. It has, it has a subplot about an illegal immigrant, Miguel, yes. that runs through the entire novel because he runs foul of the law. And it enabled me to, to talk about the, you know, the immigrant mindset from within, from within the immigrant himself in that case. Mm-hmm. But it is also an issue as it was in the 2010 election. It's an issue in the, in the election in the book because I have Jerry Brown running against not Mick Whitman, but the brother of the female protagonist's part-time employer. Yes. And like Meg Whitman, he is exposed for hiring an illegal immigrant without, you know, without, uh, what should I say, Keep, not paying social security or anything mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for the worker. And it becomes a scandal. Mm-hmm. So I made use of that within the book itself in order to further pursue that Argument, and I also have the house housekeeper of that CEO of a mutual company for which my Jenny, my protagonist, works. You know, he, he also employs someone who turns out. I don't know whether I should be saying this or not, but <laughs> I don't think it's giving too much away. Who turns out yes. um, not not to be fully legal? Yes. Well, you know, it's it's fascinating living here in California, sharing a border with Mexico. Of course, several other states share borders with Mexico, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. But California has a sizable border with Mexico. And we have, of course, California was part of Mexico until Indeed. until the Mexican-American War. So we, we have a very long and intricate history with Mexico. I myself lived in Mexico for almost three years. Wonderful people, wonderful culture. And we had a, we used to have... A, a guest worker program until JFK essentially broke it apart in 1963, 1964. Uh, it was it was already gone at that point. But but in any case, that our woes with with undocumented immigrants coming from Mexico stem largely from that action of the early 1960s of the Kennedy administration. But let's not go there. That's 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 too long and complex a history to go into. <laughs> let's just let's come back to our story here because we have we have Jenny who's 27 years old who is again in complete contrast to her hard-charging, very ambitious and successful sister but because she is so different, her sister sort of acts as a foil, if you will, and a complete contrast to the sort of person that Jenny is. Give us a sense about Jenny and, and how did you, as a British distinguished emeritus professor of literature, take on the voice of a 27-year-old valley girl from Southern California? <laughs> it's a good question. And I... It, it, there are two sides to the answer. One is that starting off writing my first full-length novel, I wanted to make sure that I was not simply writing a disguised autobiography or autofiction or whatever you like to call it. I wanted someone as unlike myself speaking the in the in the first person. You know, I did this, I felt that. Yes. And so, you know, I chose someone who is young when I'm old, who is female when I'm male and who is American when, as you can hear from my voice, I, yes. I, I still use English expressions. So that helped me distance 
it on the one hand and yet in, get into the voice on the other. Now, to get into that voice, I drew on what Carl uh, Jung has called men's anima. In other words, the, the female self in them that is, you know, maybe just, just less than the 50%, but is still there and part of their, their identity. And once I found that voice, uh, which I was very happy to do, the novel wrote itself very easily because all I had to do was to listen to the voice and it, it told me what to say. Well, I'll tell you, you were a very credible 27-year-old valley girl from Southern California. And that, <laughs> that, 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 voice, that voice came across loud and clear. And there's, there's even a, there's sort of a Nancy Drew element to Jenny, the erstwhile amateur detective who, who essentially is asked by the Mexican housekeeper to try to find this girlfriend of, of the, the mutual fund manager. So give us a sense of the plot and how you came up with the plot, because it's quite intricate, the main plot, that is. It's, it's quite intricate. And again, it deals with, uh, deals with Mexican drug cartels, which is a very prominent issue in American politics and California politics. I, I think it probably came up from my indignation, if you like, at the rich and powerful who claim to be, uh, what should I say, Native Americans, uh, who claim that you know immigrants are... Interlopers. Exactly, yes. exactly. And that's where I actually I made use of Jenny's sister, who turns out to be a racial, racist bigot in the end, and who hates the fact that Jenny started dating the director of an Im immigrant's rights organization. At the same time, I wanted to show how it was implicated in the entire power structure, which is why I had a, a CEO of a mutual fund company, you know, talking, handling millions of dollars. And I had his brother running against Jerry Brown for governor of California. Uh, and I, I, I show in the course of the novel, without giving the plot away, how that political, what should I say, uh, position uh, is implicated with the drug cartel. That, you know, although they take a, an ostensible stance against the drug cartels, uh, they're in fact financially linked to them. So that, that, that's what sort of basically drove the plot. And at the same time, I wanted to, if you like, produce a detective novel that wasn't a traditional detective novel. So Jenny is a hopeless... I mean, she isn't really a detective at all. All she does is watch videos for yes. the detective agency. Mm -hmm. But she's cajoled by the housekeeper into taking on this, this role of detective. And, of course, you know, she's hopelessly outmatched both by money and by power all around her. And yet somehow she persists... And moreover, well, I, 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 what I, I was going to say, moreover, it's, it's unconventional in, in the nature of the victim, but I can't, can't go into that without giving too much of the plot yeah. away. Obviously, <laughs> we don't want to give the plot away. We want our listeners to go out and buy the book. But, yeah. uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. Coming back, to, coming back to the money laundering aspect of it, it's the all-pervasive nature of these hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of, exactly. uh, that funds that are laundered back into U.S. businesses, U.S. companies. In this case, yep. the mutual fund business is a perfect vehicle for 
this Mexican drug lord to to seamlessly launder his uh, his ill-gotten gains through a mutual fund, and thereafter the money appears to be clean and untraceable. Indeed, indeed. And I, I actually investigated, researched the particular fund that they use, which is not really public and allows him to escape any kind of scrutiny as to you know, where it comes from. No, that was... Uh, and then, of course, of course, coming back to Jenny, who is a... very quickly becomes a, a pretty savvy detective. And she then finds herself in the crosshairs of the, the drug cartel war chief. She comes up with a plan to essentially protect herself from being wiped out, being a target. And at the same time, the Mexican housekeeper who had retained her, she also spirits her away to protect her away. So it's, it's, quite, an, uh, it's, it's quite an intriguing plot, which, yeah. which, which really underscores how the demand for drugs in the United States is so powerful. It is met by this gigantic Mexican narco trafficker industry. It generates hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in revenues for these drug lords who then plow it back into the United States, in this case through a, through, a, through a mutual fund. You know, ultimately, it's the American consumer which is driving the basis of this plot, the flow of... Indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? It's, I mean, it, you say that, um, you know, Jenny finally finds herself when she's having to deal with the guards, you're right. And that was part of, you know, and the, the book is a, a whole series of mixed genre and one of the genres that I'm making use of is the coming of age. Now, normally that's a teenage genre. I have it in her late 20s, but she finds herself in the course of having her, in, you know, her life endangered and uh, in pursuing you know, this particular line of inquiry that she's pursuing. She's uncovering stuff, but also having to cover herself in the process, which she hasn't done previously in her life. Now, two other themes that feature very prominently in the, in the book are surveillance technology and then her love interest in Eduardo, who is the immigrants' rights attorney. Let's come back to the issue of surveillance technology because that was also a theme which featured in your other book, which we discussed on the show a couple of months ago. Let's talk about that because it sounds as though surveillance technology is something that that you're fascinated by and you present it as as being a technology which is changing who we are, how we act, how we interact with each other, how we do business with each other. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a, it's a really important underpinning to the plot of Money Matters. Yes. Well, of course, uh, you know, because, because she is involved in an act of detection, surveillance is very appropriate also. But she's not the one who actually is using the surveillance technology and it's a surprise, it turns out, who is. But yes. that is because surveillance technology is so widespread. It, it has become part of our lives. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible for the ordinary individual American to guard themselves against it in the same way as, you know, we, we cannot really protect our identities from their manipulation by, you know, large firm, online firms and social media. 
uh, it, it's become part of our lives, which we've had to accept whether we like it or not. It's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has changed things. It has made everybody's life more public for a start. You know, that, that I mean, when, I was, when I was back in England, it was still a very private life that one could lead if one wanted to, and with very little you know, interference from the outside unless one allowed it in. Now you can't stop it coming in. It's there <laughs> from the moment, the moment you wake up and turn the television on or what have you, the radio. Yes. And that's and that's that's certainly highlighted in this in Money Matters. Now let's move yes. on to Eduardo, her new love interest, uh-huh. who who also who's an American citizen. He of course is of Hispanic heritage, but he is fighting for undocumented immigrant rights. And all of, and as a result of Jenny's investigations, she intersects with Eduardo to help protect Felicia, the the housekeeper. Let's talk about him because he also represents a coming of age step for Jenny versus her previous boyfriend. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Her her previous boyfriend was a total dropout called uh, Gary. Gary. That's right, who her sister insisted upon referring to as wary. (laughs) 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 And... uh, Near the beginning of the novel, Jenny finally comes to the conclusion that, you know, she's wasting her life trying to make anything of him and walks out of his life. And again, interestingly, you know, what is he, he doing? He's, he's, he's playing video games. And how does he get his own back by, you know, posting about her on social media? Uh, but eventually, in, in the course of her investigation, she seeks the help of uh, Eduardo, because he is a civil rights director yes. of a civil rights organization, and they are instantly attracted. Mm-hmm. And also, at the same time, uh, you have somebody who is a, a, an immigrant, and yet not, I mean, he, he's not a first-generation immigrant, but he's totally identified with immigrants' plight and with the unfair way in which they are treated by our society. And that adds, if you like, to... What should I say? You know, the, the the sexual attraction that sparks up between them, because that's where her sympathies lie as well. You know, as she says, you know, well, everybody was an immigrant originally. You know, if you go far enough back, what is this thing about? Where do you draw the line? Yes. Go on. Go on. Well, just and coming back to coming back to Gary. Two points about yeah. Gary, and one point which is sort of typical of our social media age. Within less than twenty four hours of of Jenny having walked out on Gary, she notices on Gary's Facebook profile that he's changed his status from in a relationship to single, <laughs> single and available. What a, exactly. What, exactly. A, what a cad. What a cad. <laughs> I, I, just, I just remembered what, what Trisha calls him is dreary. Yes, dreary. dreary. <laughs> and then, and then it's notwithstanding, notwithstanding Trisha's, calling him dreary and and running him down it turns out that gary uh aka dreary has been supplying pills to trisha indeed so yeah yeah, she's a bit of a hypocrite in that regard very much so and she she uh if you like echoes or parallels the hypocrisy at a much uh larger level of the politician yes now let's come back to the politician because the politician is the brother of the head of the mutual fund. So the mutual fund is a very well-heeled, uh, uber-wealthy 
investment banker, mutual fund manager, and he is largely funding the campaign of his brother who's running against Jerry Brown. Right. And then, and then additionally, there's some of the Mexican drug cartel money, which is finding its way into the, into the candidate coffers. But indeed, but that, that candidate is a particularly nasty piece of work. Could we, uh, could we, could we talk about him for a moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, he and his CEO brother, are meant to represent, if you like, the, the what shall I say, the likable and unlikable aspect of, of the same side of the coin. I mean, they're both basically implicated in the same in the same deal. Mm-hmm. But one of them is really likable and nice and gentlemanly on the outside, and the other is, you know, despicable. At the same time, when it really comes to it, it's the CEO who brings in Jorge, the um, jefe of the you know, cartel, yes. to threaten Jenny with all kinds of things if she, you know, if she doesn't do what they, what, what they want her to do. So that he's actually, if you look at it in terms of actions, there's no difference between him and his brother, although yeah. there's a big difference in personality. And, you know, once again, it without giving away the plot, it's the storyline really underscores how pervasive the problem of undocumented immigration and the narco trafficking, money laundering, how all pervasive it's become in our politics and our lives, largely for the bad. Occasionally, there are some good outcomes, such as Eduardo and Felicia in this particular story. But it, it mm-hmm. just it goes to show you, and particularly for our listeners overseas, that when, when they hear about stories of undocumented immigration or money laundering or drug trafficking in, in the United States, it's something, they are two issues which, which, fund, which have pervaded American society almost at every single level. And your novel very graphically describes how those two major issues have pervaded lives of people who never in their wildest imagination would have thought they were, that they're, they were going to be touched by such, such issues. You, you put it very well. <laughs> I can't improve on that. <laughs> and, and, I mean, all I would say is that, you know, why, and one of the reasons I wrote the novel was in order to try and give readers a sense of what it was like from the inside rather than from, you know, the statistics, the newspaper reports and so on. Yes. And then, of course, Jenny and Trisha's parents who live out in the valley, parents yeah. are are dyed-in-the-wool liberals, social activists, social... Ref- and uh, again, in complete contrast to their daughter, Trisha, but you can see where Jenny gets some of her somewhat naive and still sh- still taking shape social justice views. Exactly. I mean, Jenny obviously is another generation, and she definitely has some distance from them, and yet she can't... I mean, basically, she shares the same core values that they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, She just doesn't believe in the way they... What should I say? She doesn't believe in the kind of public actions like the marches and so on that they went in for. She doesn't think they they got anywhere in the end. Well, Brian, in the remaining moments of our podcast, are there any additional thoughts you'd like to share with our readers? Uh, excuse, well, our listeners, who hopefully will become readers. 
Well, you know, I, I certainly hope that they, they try and locate the book. It's available in on Amazon as a paperback and an e-book and a, an audio book. The audio book has, has sold quite a lot of copies, actually. It's been very successful. Uh-huh. And if they want to know anything more about me and my other work, they can find it on my website, which is a fairly extensive developed website at bhfinney, B-H-F-I-N-N-E-Y, Very good. So listeners, please take a moment and go to amazon.com to order a copy of the book. And then also check out Brian's personal website, bhfinney.com, to get a sense of the man and his history, the other books that he's working on. And Brian, can we pull back the curtain a little bit and give a tease to our our listeners as regards the next book that may be coming down the road? Well, my previous two books have, you know, a general theme and individuals who are, if you like, implicated within that general um, theme, like, you know, immigration in the first case and with dangerous conjectures, conspiracy theories and COVID-19. I feel that the thing, that that, that the large theme that threatens all of our uh, existences at the moment in America and in the world generally is the increasing disparity in wealth between the rich and the poor mm-hmm. that could tear our societies apart. And so I'm just thinking about confronting somebody who is possibly homeless, possibly living in a van or what have you, with someone who is amongst the privileged few, he's maybe a merchant banker or what have you. The two of them... Their, their, their lives become entangled with one another. First of all, by trying to get the him trying to get rid of her, the you know the homeless woman, yes. and eventually being forced to take her in. What happens then? <laughs> well, well, Brian, thank you for pulling back the curtain. I would love to have you back to do to discuss that book once it is published, and I'm sure the the listeners would do likewise. And again, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Money Matters and the the major themes that, that you outline in the book, which were themes 10, 20 years ago and still are very prominent themes today. Thank you very much for your time and your all of your erudition on the subject. Thank you, Jim, for the opportunity to express that. Very good. Well, mm-hmm. uh, and for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, which is www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, all new episodes go directly to your inbox. You can also read my blog, peruse my book, send me an email, or leave me a comment. This has been Jim Herlihy for the San Francisco Experience, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.